0: Hello and welcome to the Law & Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder of Law & Sport. In today's show, I'm joined by Andrew Nixon, a partner at the law firm Sheridans, and Daniel G, a senior associate at the law firm Phil Fisher Waterhouse, to discuss a topic that has divided the football community, that is third-party ownership. So stick with us for what will be an amazing episode. Third party ownership is something that people in the football community feel strongly about. Only last month, the president of UEFA, Michel Platini, said What I can't understand is when players in Brazil and Argentina don't belong to a club, but they belong to people instead. It means that, instead of going into sport, the money goes to people. That is not logical. It is not human that people should belong to other people who sell them off. We will make the law against that for the whole of UEFA. If FIFA does not take any measures, we will take them in Europe. They were strong words from Michelle Pattini. But before we get into the debate about the regulation of third-party ownership, I asked Andrew Nixon to define what is third-party ownership in football.
1: Basically, it's an arrangement that exists whereby a third party retains an interest in the economic and registration rights of a player. Uh, and I guess it arises in football predominantly because there are different legal and economic rights between a club and a player if that makes sense so you know when a player signs for a club there would be a number of transactions the employment transaction and the employment contract the registration right which is obviously the right to play for a club or indeed in a league and of course there's the economic right which is obviously the right to receive proceeds of sale of the registration right so simply put it's where a party that is not actually employing the player uh, owns an economic uh, right, then third-party ownership or TPO arises. I suppose that would be my summary of
2: it. Daniel, did you
0: have anything to add?
2: Sounds like a good definition to me. I mean, I think the point generally being is, um, and we can go into it in more detail, is, is TPO is effectively the ability of um, um, an entity which isn't the club to own a future transfer right in a player. That's how I try and summarise it in a sentence.
0: So what you're saying is that it's the money investors invest in a club on the basis of getting a share of the money derived from a future transfer fee.
2: Correct. In the, in the very basic sense. Yeah, if you it can give, work in a variety and a of very, ways. Yeah. And if you give a very basic example, I mean, more or less the, the, the easiest example is when, um, let's take um, Club A, doesn't only has €5 million Euros to be able to buy a €10 million Euro player. Um, a third-party owner may enter into an agreement with the club and with the player that it's signing that they will uh, spend €5 million Euros on the initial transfer fee and, that when, and then may take 60% of the future transfer fee when that player is then subsequently sold on. And that's the, the very basic premise.
0: And just to Andrew, can you then explain, you said that there were some other ways this may work. Do you, can you, have you got a couple of examples of those?
1: Um well yeah, I mean I suppose there are examples whereby I mean I guess it's more the kind of the how it's structured and it's I'm just speaking from a you know, my own practical experience whereby an individual uh, or a company uh, indeed can purchase the economic right direct from the player, perhaps by way of an assignment and consideration for a sum of money, uh, and then in practice the player can sell his economic rights to the company and the company will sell those rights to a third party owner, which may be a fund or a club or an agent. But ultimately, you know, the, the, the end deal tends to be an agreement between the third party uh, and the club, which is as Daniel uh, has described. Um, you know, the important point to remember, I think, is that you know, it's a simple point, but the important important point to remember is that the investor, or the fund, or the agent, whatever the third party may be, is not the holder or the owner of the player, but simply the owner of the economic rights deriving from his uh, future transfer value.
0: Am I am I right in this assessment that they don't actually have any interest in their salary? It's well, just yeah, just just the
1: economic rights, which is obviously the the rights to any. Uh, commercial revenue deriving from the future transfer. I mean, it, you know, obviously an agent can have uh, potential rights in relation to salary over the course of a contract, but you know, when it comes to pure third party ownership, then no, it's just the, uh, the transfer value.
0: Um, so if I am uh, an investor and I'm looking to part with my money. on the the basis of one of these third-party relationships, how would it work in practice?
2: Um, I I may... uh, Andrew, if you don't mind, just... Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, I think the general point of how it works is, one is is the description that I gave before, but another description, as Andrew actually alluded to just before, was um, what, what happens in South America, for example. It's quite a stereotyped example, but one that does happen quite regularly, which is a very talented 14-, 15-, 16-year-old, for example, um, who may need, who, who lives in a relatively uh, poor family, uh, that third-party investor or a businessman may offer uh, that player's mother a job, move them to a, a more, um, uh, well, a, more, um, a better area of the city, provide them with resources, the best football boots, provide contacts to clubs, and effectively invest Money in that player and give that player money, and in return, when that player then initially signs their first contract with the local, regional, whatever team that they are playing with, um, then that owner, as long as it's with the agreement of the player and the club, uh, may then own um, a stake commensurate with the investment that that, um, the, that investor has actually put um, to the uh, to the player. And the other example really is um, funds as as sort of more high-risk speculators when they are um, entering into more large-scale agreements with um, football clubs um, either before a transaction is completed or after a transaction transfer is completed, and um, uh, uh, a third-party fund may decide to take uh, an interest stake in the future transfer value of um, a football player uh, because they think that this is the next up-and-coming Brazilian under-21 international that is going to make it on the world stage. Yeah, I think that's a yeah a well-constructed assessment. The other thing, I've,
1: the structure I've seen, which I think is becoming quite common, there's a lot of, obviously, academies um, being created, uh, particularly in Africa, obviously, to, to tap into the, uh, the talent pool there. And. Some funds and investors invest in those academies in consideration for a, a percentage of the economic rights in a selection of players within those academies, and obviously those academies have um, football clubs that they um, affiliate with and obviously register the players with. Um, but yeah, that's just a sort of an, an alternative structure that I've seen.
0: And third-party ownership is prohibited in in <coughs> the English leagues. Uh, in France and Poland. So why why are we concerned about it? Why is it still hot topic? Can you just give us a brief history of sort of how this how the argument around um, third party ownership and the, the difference of opinions have formed over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean it's um, well, I mean it's fair to say that third party ownership, we we'll use that phrase, has had a, a fairly bumpy history and looks like having a relatively bumpy future, at least in the short term. Um, and you've obviously alluded to the, the, the teeny comment. I mean, as Dan mentioned, historically, the third party interest developed and was long practiced in South America and obviously some parts of Europe. And many shrewd investors have, have made uh, a lot of money. And, of course, again, as Dan alluded to, a lot of those investors have created a platform for players to forge professional careers, when indeed that might not have been possible but for the investment. But I think to answer that question, properly you need to distinguish between third-party ownership and third-party influence when you're talking about you know, the issues and, and obviously why it, why some governing bodies regulate against it. And obviously third-party influence is where a third-party seeks to or is able to influence the decisions of a club um, and, indeed, the decisions of the player. And it's not a surprise um, that an issue with this exists. Uh, And, of course, there's always been a a generic worldwide ban on the prohibition or worldwide prohibition, sorry, on third-party influence, which is Article 18B, I think, of the FIFA player status rules. And this is the concept that a third-party... Uh, with an investment interest is able to influence the club uh, and then if you strip that back a bit you can focus in on the Tevez case which is obviously a well known example of the dangers of, of this type of practice. I don't want to go into it in too much detail but Tevez signed for West Ham there was an agreement with a third party that allowed that third party to influence when Tevez was sold and, and also I think to whom and the problem was West Ham failed to disclose that arrangement uh, to their governing body and they were charged by the uh, by the Premier League and in that case West Ham were able to pick up a world-class player without paying a commensurate fee and the player basically kept them in the Premier League and they were fined uh, £5 million by the FAPL arbitral body but that led to, to satellite arbitral proceedings involving Sheffield United who did get relegated and in the end Sheffield United had to sue uh, West Ham for, for damages and that case was eventually settled so that the Tevez case, uh, as a kind of a as a case in point, crystallises the issues with third-party influence, in it, and that's the why the FA is so concerned about, it, and that's why the FA, um, you know, has has brought in regulations against third-party ownership. Um, there's obviously a far um, more relaxed, or, or or at least a more relaxed uh, uh, viewpoint taken. Within the wider football world, under the under the FIFA rules, but it really is important to distinguish between third party ownership and third party influence, because third party influence is what I guess no one wants to see from a, from a from a footballing perspective. Uh, but third party ownership, you know, there's a lot of positives with that, um, and although the detractors argue against it, there's a lot of positives with it, which will no doubt come on to.
0: Platini mentioned in the quote that what he didn't understand is why people don't invest in clubs and daniel i wondered if well we spoke about this before and about how all the problems with concaf for example and how money was distributed between the leagues has made people not feel comfortable with actually giving money to or investing in football clubs
2: yeah i mean um, from a very uh, basic analogy i would say generally throughout the world I think people would say, you invest in a football club, you're most likely to lose money. You invest <laughs> in third-party-owned players, you're more, more likely to make money from a very cynical, you know, capitalist, free-market perspective. But I think um, I think the point generally being with um, third-party ownership and in, or third-party investment, I know, because I was speaking to one of the guys at Porto a while back, and he was more inclined to use that phrase, is that to a lot of degrees it, it, it can... Um, balance out the inequalities of systems within within the within the European regulatory framework, the national regulations as well. You have countries like the Premier League who um, have the luxury, potentially at least, of being able to ban third-party investment ownership because they've got huge um, stadiums, they've got massive TV broadcasting rights, they're able to commercialise the revenues to a much larger degree. And, you know, Porto's argument is we, we have none of those benefits. And so the only way to potentially compete and compete efficiently in European competition is to be able to use an additional source of finance, i.e. third-party investors, to partner up with our club to provide additional revenue that we otherwise wouldn't otherwise have and share the, firstly share the rewards, but secondly, de-risk the risk of failure. So um, it works both ways, and in the end, Porto, I think you know have really been one of the most successful clubs of being able to sell on extremely lucrative uh, on extremely lucrative um, transfer fees individuals who they would not have necessarily been able to buy without the help of these third party investors. So I think in terms of um, equalizing potentially competitive balance within the European um, structure of competitions, There's there's quite a strong argument to say third-party ownership actually in some leagues is of benefit to be able to raise the standard of players in particular leagues for particular periods of time. Yeah, I think that's absolutely
1: spot-on as an assessment. I mean, I'd agree completely with the the competitive balance point. I mean, there's real real merit in the argument that instead of distorting competition, it, it simply... Balances that are rebalances, and obviously clubs can potentially obtain players they would not otherwise have been able to afford. And the reality is, if only a handful of clubs can actually exploit the transfer market, it's that which distorts competition, not a third-party investment. And actually, the, the Portuguese um, clubs, Porto in particular, which Dan just touched upon—I mean, they obviously publish details, I think, of the players who are subject to third party interests and break break down the percentages of ownership etc so there is uh, some you know some degree of transparency there and i think you know in terms of projecting into the future and how this might be regulated you know that type of transparent model may well be or indeed probably is the way to go
0: and so we've been quite positive i guess about third party ownership well, well, part of the reason I want to have the discussion was I remember having a, speaking to someone about this a while ago, and they were vehemently against third-party ownership. And whilst I was quite happily sitting on the fence on the matter. I was trying to point out that it's a more complex issue so you've got those obviously who are for it in Porto for example as you just nicely outlined who use it and use it successfully and think it's a vital vital tool in helping them compete with other European clubs but then you've got those who are like Platini who are vehemently against it so can you just outline what the complaints are against third-party ownership
2: um, the, the the, the ones that spring out to me the most are continue in his quote, was talking about, you know, a human owning another human. Um, I think my own view on that is that that's a little, um, well, over the top to a degree in that it's simply a contractual arrangement, um, which allows um, someone to be able to uh, profit from a future, a future transfer. So there's no ability for that third party owner to own the registration, to imply that a player has to do a certain thing because then that would fall foul of a fifa 18 biz um, the second point is that i think um uefa and fifa to some degree have been arguing that um, a lot of money then is extracted from the game that would otherwise go to other clubs to yeah. players to the football community to the grassroots you know to hold whole host of investment within the game and and to some degree that that that, that is right, but I guess that's balanced against the basis that if a player doesn't do well and flops, then that club has saved itself potentially a lot of money that otherwise would have gone somewhere else. And, and I think the third point, which I, I know that I'm sure Andrew can talk about as well, is an integrity of competition issue, which, which steps back to Andrew's point about um, transparency. And, and this is the debate, I think, that will take full uh, spotlight, which is whether... Um, third-party ownership, at least for UEFA for competitions, needs to be regulated, i.e. there needs to be a transparent approach to be able to for clubs to disclose, like Porto do in their annual accounts, who is owned by what, and ensure that there is no undue influence to make sure none of the regulations are breached, or, yeah. absolute, out, or absolute outright ban, which uh, is obviously a lot more, um, uh, a lot more of a, um, an absolute prohibition, which then... Would enable, which would effectively foreclose quite a large market um, for anyone wanting to, any player or club wanting to compete in um, European competition. I agree
1: with uh, all of that. I think, um, you know, one of the points that TD was perhaps trying to get at, and, and again, you know, a lot of his points and comments are you know, entirely understandable from a, a regulator's perspective. Um, and I suppose. <laughs> there's merit in the argument that it would be almost impossible or is in principle impossible to have a third party ownership or third party investment without third party influence and the argument against it would be that investors are one way or another simply bound to try and influence um, the decision making of clubs in relation to transfers simply because uh, you know there is a lot of money at stake and you know, perhaps one would be naive to think that they would simply step back from everything and let um, you know the you know the normal way things play out. Um, and I think that's what what he was getting at to some degree and was concerned about. I think also there is that, and again, Dan touched upon it, that moral argument, that idea of owning humans, that form of um, almost human slavery, if you like. But that, in some ways, doesn't stack up as well because clubs, trade, players as assets. Um, I don't really necessarily see what the difference is between that and
0: you know, third-party investors um, effectively doing, doing the same. What about the influence of agents, which I think is often over, overlooked, because they are effectively incentivised to move players on because they get more money, in theory at least, if a player was to move to a bigger club um, and get a more beneficial deal. So surely if we're looking at a third party or a third party ownership state being looked at very closely, agents and how they operate needs to be taken into consideration at the same time.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, you know, an agent as a, a third party could potentially influence the club's decision making to the extent that they would have that type of control or power. Um, yeah, and obviously that would be a prohibited practice in the same way as a, a third-party investor influencing a club's decision to sell
0: or transact a player. And this is where it's interesting. Daniel, we're interested on your take on this. Well,
2: um, I think the point worth stressing there is, is that, in that in this sense, we're talking about two slightly different things. An agent has an economic interest in trying, in a lot of the time trying to move on a player because they will make a percentage on the, on the fee, on the increased wages and associated benefits. When, when we're talking about a third-party owner, the, the, the way that a third-party owner effectively gets comfort um, from their investment is, is, in, is in the contractual documentation. So that, for example, if um, an offer comes in for a certain amount of money for that player, the club doesn't have to accept that offer. But if they don't, then they have to buy out the third-party owner for a set amount or if that's not the case and there are three windows to go for example until the end of the, player, end of the player's contract then a set amount is agreed to ensure that the player's contract doesn't run down and that the third-party owner isn't left without any investment so there's the point generally being is that um agents on one side have um a, a set narrative that they will play to it may sometimes be because the club wants the player to move on at the same time But the distinct analogy is that third-party investors are effectively looking to speculate to accumulate the effective increase in asset value value of the the player, rather than the agent trying to, in a nicer sense, wheel deal to try and get the best deal for for their player.
0: Where where do you think the future is then? Where is it it going for third-party ownership, both in Europe and internationally?
1: um what's the a very good question the million dollar question i think um obviously having listened to what patinia said um he obviously has his views on that i do think that uh, a worldwide ban is unlikely and again we're distinguishing between third party investment ownership and third party influence which of course is banned and um and should be banned, but a worldwide ban on third-party ownership, I think, is unlikely. Obviously, England and France have their regulations in place, but I guess it's difficult for them to complain about any sort of competitive advantage other clubs and other under other jurisdictions might have, because in, in truth, they could change their regulations to um, uh, to fit with the regulations in other. Countries and obviously, you know, without wishing to get into the details, a complete ban could potentially lead to a, a a competition law challenge. And obviously, we know from Mecca Medina that a sporting rule must pursue a legitimate aim, and there are obviously less, arguably at least, less ways of um, less restrictive ways of getting to the legitimate legitimate aim um, than uh, than third than banning third-party ownership. Um, Right. Uh, my view is that the future will probably or inevitably involve um, simply greater regulation um, because, you know, anything other than that would inevitably push it underground um, and other practices may sprout up or crop up which are worse than or perceived be worse than third-party ownership and third-party investment, and I think that is something that football must guard against, and obviously the regulators have a duty to the stakeho- stakeholders to ensure that those types of uh, risks are guarded against, and, and I think the out- an outright ban would um, you know, potentially cause more problems than it, it solves.
2: Well, I think the interesting thing is that you've got Quite a lot of sound bites from official committees from both FIFA and UEFA, and and I agree with Andrew Way said that he doesn't think that um, a worldwide ban is practical, logical, desirable. Only because I think the political will to try and get that into the the FIFA statutes, if that's where it had to go, or the, some type of regulations, would be extremely difficult because of a number of you know vested interests for the for the best possible cause.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I think the interesting thing that um, If that doesn't happen, what will probably happen is – and Platini is is vehemently um, in favour of um, outright prohibition – is that UEFA, because I don't think UEFA – will UEFA do not have the ability to be able to dictate what national associations do – that FIFA, for their Europa League and for their Champions League competitions, maybe even as part of the licensing criteria or as part of the regulations for regulating Champions League or Europa League participation will actually put an outright ban in those regulations so that it means that clubs will still be able to participate in those competitions, but they'll not be able to field players that a third party owns. And I think that's probably the the midway point. And it will be potentially an outright ban for a specific UEFA competition. And I think that's where I believe UEFA's probably headed. And just as as Andrew mentioned, I think... um, a potential challenge, um, either a complaint to the Commission or uh, something in the uh, national courts is um, is a distinct possibility because of the fact that a number of these clubs in Europe are using third-party investment as um, a significant tool. And um, I think uh, I think UEFA don't at the moment seem to be, from what I've been explained to you from a few people, don't seem to be um, willing to budge too much on this uh, on this point of um of prohibition for, for European competition. So the next year or two I think it's gonna be extremely interesting to see whether UEFA is going to have the political will to, to push this through for their um for their you know headline events.
1: Yeah, I mean it's um you know there's a political will so the you know the practical realities. I was speaking to um Nick DeMarco of Blackstone not so long ago about this and his view, um, and there's a lot of merit in it, is that complete prohibition would be you know, pretty much non impossible to enforce. And I, I suppose you'd almost have to look to do it retrospectively, perhaps. And would clubs then presumably be forced to buy out third-party owners in relation to agreements that were already in place at the point of the inverted commas, worldwide ban? And I guess the, the, the upshot is what if... A club doesn't want to do that, can't do that, won't do that. Would the um, the players involved effectively be banned from playing? And if they were, they would still they would still actually have because obviously we go back to that point we made right at the start about the three, the the, the various different you know, regulatory and legal elements to to a player transfer. Even though um, you know the third party ownership may have been banned, they would still have a. And, and I guess the. the, the Players could potentially be banned as well. They would still have a contract of employment with the club, separate from the registration and economic rights. You know, would, which would still, in principle, be enforceable. You know, it's a really, it's, it's it's a bit of a minefield. I mean, the other point is, you know, and again, to be fair, it's a point that Nick made. I mean, if you look at how football or different governing bodies structure themselves throughout the world, the MLS is technically and could be construed as a third party owner in itself because obviously they hold the registration rights for the players in the MLS as opposed to the MLS clubs themselves. And arguably, therefore, they would they would have a degree of influence and certainly have a degree of ownership. Um, so you'd have to almost ask governing bodies or commercial governing bodies at least like the MLS to completely restructure how they, they operate and I don't think that's practical either.
0: That was Andrew Nixon from Sheridan's and Daniel G from Phil Fisher Waterhouse talking about third party ownership in football. Well that's it for this show, thank you for tuning in. Remember you can go to lawinsport.com to access over 450 articles, blogs, videos and podcasts providing expert commentary and analysis on the latest issues and legal developments in the world of sport.